take a one and pass them around and I apologize for the quality of the handouts. I use this different template for the uh, PowerPoint presentation and somehow some of the words got out of the box and it just uh, cut them off. And uh, uh, This is why I'm a creature of habit. I don't like new things and so uh, I'd rather bore you with the same old format of, of PowerPoint slides than to change, change them around and miss some of the stuff. I want us to look at the divine narrative of Scripture. We are now halfway through our year-long journey of reading through the Bible together here at Newtown Bible Church. I think it's important when we are reading through Scripture in our devotions and studying through Scriptures together as a church Though we love the nuances, it's the nuances of both the original languages and the structure of the language put in a historical context that all helps in unpacking the meaning of Scripture. So we love detail. We, we can't get enough of it. But let's make sure to never lose the forest for the trees. Let's make sure to always understand the big grid uh, from 30,000 feet. You know, some of the guys that sit with me periodically as we uh, work on hermeneutics and how to study the Bible, uh, quite, this, is, this is like one of my soapboxes I stand up upon to tell people, you, you must have the overarching understanding. So like... Uh, Pastor Joey's back in the pulpit today, so I'll use Matthew as an example. We've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. You must understand the thrust of the Gospel of Matthew and then zero in on it by the chapter and by the paragraph and by the verse and by the word. I think big pictures are important. The overall thrust in the simplest, clear, and foundational way, understanding what is the Bible about? This is another part, another element, another aspect when, when Peter says to ready yourself to give uh, a reason for the hope that's in. Somebody says, well, what's Christianity about? What is the Bible? Are you able to give them a quick general snippet of the panorama of biblical truth from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to culmination? And then, as you have time, how all the parts fit together to create the whole. So it's important in comprehending the whole theme, the divine narrative, to have that in the back of your head when you are studying through Scripture, when you are reading through various texts of Scripture, always considering, well, where am I at in the progress of Revelation? in, say, Esther. Where, where are we at in the unfolding of redemption's plan? Well, right now in our, our Bible reading, both in the morning and the evening, both in the Old Testament and the New, uh, New Testament, we've been before the cross, and now we're in the book of Acts uh, after the cross. 
And so that's where we're at in the, the, uh, the, the grand narrative. So, so let's look at the, uh, the divine narrative, just big picture this morning in these few moments together in thinking through the grand narrative or divine narrative of Scripture. Act 1 in your slide. Act 1. Where do you start? At the beginning. The creation of the universe and the establishment of man as God's vice regents over the earth. Where does God's divine narrative begin? In creation. Where God's eternal power and deity are manifest. You might think, where am I headed? You might think, well, I'm going to ask you to join me in Genesis chapter 1. Not at all. Romans chapter 1. This is where Paul begins <laughs> to uh, talk about the divine narrative. In Romans 1, in verse number 20, as he is presenting the gospel and presenting salvation by grace through faith and the, culp the culpability, the accountability that all man everywhere has, he starts in the creation account. And he tells them in Romans 1 and verse 20, for since the creation of the world, the very beginning, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And so, here we've got creation's account. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God, under no obligation to create, but through creation, puts Himself on display. What does the psalmist say about the divine narrative in, uh, in Psalm 19? He says that the heavens are, what? Declaring. That word in the Hebrew, literally, the heavens are narrating the glory of God. That's astounding. That all of creation everywhere, because of God's creative genius and how His attributes are clearly seen, everyone knows there's a God. That's why the psalmist says the fool said in his heart there is no God. You're being a fool to ignore and to lie against what you know to be the truth. You look all around you, the heavens are narrating His glory, His eternal power and His deity. So much to be said in Act 1 at the starting point of the narrative. Yes, His eternal power and deity are on display, but also you think about our part in that creation narrative. The glory and duty of man. In creation, everything is patterned after itself. You know, when, when my kids eat uh, fruit, they want to take the seed and go plant, you know, go plant the apple seed and see if we can get an apple, apple tree. Uh, I forget what fruit uh, one of the kids had in a Ziploc bag the other day. They wanted to go plant it. Uh, what is it? Mango. So we want to grow mangoes. Uh, and so everything patterned after itself, it had a seed within itself. So when you've got uh, acorns that drop from the tree and fall to the ground and thus plant themselves and reproduce after their kind, man is the only part of creation which is not patterned after his kind. Man's patterned after God. Man is to be an image bearer 
of God. God imaged man or, or, or made man His image for His glory. Matter of fact, now I'll take you to Genesis 1 on this thought. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So here's, here's uh, their obligation, their duty. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's your duty as image bearers of God. Image Him for His glory. So we start off with Act 1, creation of the universe and the establishment of man as God's vice-regents over the earth. God gave them dominion, rulership. Act 2 of God's grand narrative, not long after the creation, is rebellion. So I trust that as you ready yourself to uh, to think through the big picture in your, your own study of Scripture and for that person that asks you about what is this religion that you practice, the first word you can share with them is creation. The second word you can share with them is rebellion. The rebellion of man and nations against their Creator. In Genesis 3, you've got man's sin, man was forbidden, and yet man disobeyed. And so God judges man. And even in the midst of judgment, there is mercy. In Genesis 3, you've got God cursing the earth that He created. And He says that uh, in the day that you eat of it, you will what? What's going to happen to man? I see some not, not die. Immediately, man did die spiritually, but God allowed them to live on in the flesh for many years. He, he should have wiped them out, but instead he, uh, he cast them out of the garden and allowed them to live on, and they would live now through the, the sweat of their own brow to expand upon the, the, our understanding of the rebellion of, of man against their creator, we've, we've got in Genesis 6 a, a great uh, description of man's depravity. For most of history, history has, in, in God's grand narrative, history has been tragically altered because now everything would be known and experienced through the grid of sin and rebellion. We've said before in Sunday school that there's only four chapters in the Bible not dealing with sin, the first two and the last two. Everything else on man's experience for thousands of years has only been known through their fallenness, living in a fallen world as fallen creatures, fallen from grace. All that takes place 
takes place through man who was created to bear God's image and to glorify Him by bearing that image, and that image through sin has been twisted. It's been mangled so that though the image of God in man is still there, not a great picture. It's fuzzy. It's not focused. Because man wanted to be like God. So the image of God broken severely, distorted. So act one of the divine narrative, we've got creation. Act two, we've got rebellion. Act three, as we continue going through biblical history, we've got the choosing and redemption of Israel to be God's servant nation and yet her rebellion. This is uh, Genesis eleven twenty seven through the rest of the Old Testament, Malachi. A particular people that He chose by His grace and kindness to redeem and, and image Him. You remember when uh, you know, uh, the, the first thought under this, you notice the holiness of God. Uh, before this nation was ever, um, be, before they ever went out of the house of bondage, God revealed Himself to Moses. You remember the Exodus 3 passage up there, Exodus 3, 5? This is the, uh, the uh, burning bush. And what was... God's instruction to Moses, you are to take off your sandals because where you're standing is what? Holy ground. The establishment of the holiness of God. Matter of fact, take your Bibles and turn over to Leviticus 11. I trust that uh, when we were reading through the book of Leviticus, you didn't get lost in all the, the, the bloodiness of the sacrificial system. Leviticus is a book on how a holy God can be worshipped by an unholy people who have been called to holiness, who have been set apart unto holiness to bear image of their holy God. In Leviticus 11, verses 44 and 45, God says, I, I, am the, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, lest people think that, uh, that, that those that receive some of the blessing of the new covenant, believers today, cannot learn from the, the, uh, the Mosaic law, we can learn much. You look at the Ten Commandments, they still are a perfect picture of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. We would break them. It's still a great tool in evangelism to show people 
how great and holy God is and how desperately sinful we are. So in Act 3 of the divine narrative, we've got relationship initiated. A choosing and redeeming of Israel to be God's servant nation. To make a nation who wasn't a nation. And to show forth His holiness. Not too much further on there in Leviticus. uh, Leviticus uh, 19, there are instructions in the moral and ceremonial laws which stem from His very character. These weren't just disconnected, random requirements God gave. You know, I remember when, the, when uh, our family was, was reading through this, and uh, you know, part of the takeaway as you're reading through Leviticus is that uh, you know, God is, God's holiness is absolute. You, you, God's not haphazard. He's not random. You look at uh, how, how Noah was to build the ark and all the specifications and the detail. God took great interest. You know, and as he, as he develops this, this system by which he can be approached, you've got the clean and you've got the unclean because they express his moral perfections. So, so in Acts 3, we're introduced to the holiness of God. We are also introduced to the idolatry and unholiness of Israel. M- Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving from God his requirements the Ten Commandments. And what were God's chosen people doing in the midst of? The golden calf, worshiping an idol of their own making. Oh, this is the one that uh, uh, brought you out of the land of Egypt. Totally missing everything. The whole point. You know, what, what, what's reiterated in Israel's history? When they look back at Egypt land, it was to extol the greatness of God that He brought them out with a a mighty hand out of the house of bondage. And yet, they as an idolatrous and unholy people. Uh, Jeremiah 2 and verse 13 that's, uh, that's mentioned there. Jeremiah 2 and verse number 13 is just another snippet from Holy Scripture. God says, My people have committed two evils. Boils it all down to one. uh, Down to two. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot, that can hold no water. So they've forsaken and hewn. Those are the active verbs there. They've forsaken the one true God to be worshipped and adored and imaged to the nations and replaced Him with their own images. Those who were created to image Him image in their own greatness. And in this choosing and redemption of Israel to be God's servant nation, yet her rebellion, does, does her unfaithfulness negate God's 
relationship initiated? Not at all. And this is what's so amazing about grace. We've got the promise of Messiah, the Savior and King of Israel, who will bring salvation and blessing to the nations, which is where us Gentiles come into the picture. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. I was talking with a with a a guy recently who's got a, a real, uh, uh, I guess in, in school he majored on uh, um, messianic theology and uh, he was talking to, to somebody just recently about how people, th- there's, there's a growing number of people trying to say how that um, they, they attack the messianic passages of the Old Testament. It's like, how can you miss it? It's, it's as obvious as the, the big nose on my face. You, you, you can't miss it. Isaiah 52, going into 53, we've got the sin-bearing servant, the prophecy, the forward-looking, so that he can fulfill what God's people did not. You know, fallen humans left to themselves cannot image God. They must be aided through this one. Isaiah 52, notice uh, verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13. This is one of those mountainous passages of Scripture, Mount Everest passages extolling the promise of Messiah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For it had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him. Notice Notice how that the translators help us by capitalizing the, the H's here, that we're looking to the high and holy one. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of perched ground. He's got no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Notice the past tense. This is so certain, uh, so certain a coming of this perfect one that it's spoken of in past tense like it's already happened. That's how, how you can mark down this guarantee. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore or will bear. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression... And judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. You notice all through this passage, at least one word ought to come to mind, substitution. The guiltless dying for the guilty. So in Acts 3 of the divine narrative, we've got a chosen and redemption of Israel, yet her rebellion. Notice how that if, if we had time, other scriptures that I'd insert there would be uh, passages uh, in the Gospels of, of their rejection of him, but uh, that comes in the next uh, part of the drama. Notice Act 4, and I'm sorry this got cut off. This is coming of Messiah. Coming of Messiah to Israel is Act 4. Coming of Messiah to Israel, his rejection as king, but provision for forgiveness of sin through penal substitutionary death. This is all the gospel witness. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all fleshing out the greatness of the one who did come as promised. Why did he come? The faithfulness of God. It's the only explanation. And some of the, uh, some of the writers uh, make note of this in their, in their writings. For instance, in Matthew 1, where Matthew begins his account, in Matthew 1, notice verses 22 and 23 where he, he borrows from Isaiah the prophet. He borrows from Isaiah 7.14 when he says in Matthew 1.22... All of this took place to fulfill, to bring to fruition, to bring to completion what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. What did the prophet say? He tells us, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God touches down. Not in the Shekinah, like he did in the Old Covenant, he, he comes onto the scene robed in human flesh. And then later on in, in Matthew's account, in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, another reference that you've got there on the faithfulness of God. Here, Matthew cites Micah, the minor prophet. An another messianic prophecy a future orientation when it was in the Old Testament of the one who would come. And when he borrows from Micah, he says here in Matthew 2, 5 and 6, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Long before Jesus ever appeared in Bethlehem, they looked forward to him being born there. 
This is the faithfulness of God. In bringing about the coming of Messiah, which was all future orientation of the Old Testament, ever since Genesis 3, the seed that was promised. And in parallel form, or in contrast to the faithfulness of God, what do we see recorded in the divine narrative? The unfaithfulness of Israel. He came to his own. What's the writer say? His own received him not. Israel's rightful king is crucified. Even the pagan leaders recognize this. In, in John, that's why I gave you John 19.15 <laughs> that Israel had crucified their king. The, the reference there in Matthew 12, 22 to 32, this is the account of the unpardonable sin. What they say to Jesus, what you do, you do through the power of Beelzebul. Because if they admit that he did through, through the power of God, then this was God that touched down here on planet earth. And they must surrender their allegiance to him. So, so we've got in act four of the divine narrative, Christ, the perfect son, who perfectly images God, which man no longer does. Who doesn't do as Adam, this is the second Adam. Who doesn't do as Israel did but one who perfectly keeps the word. So we've got coming of Messiah and you know, we could, we could turn to other passages if we had time. We'd, we'd turn to possibly Colossians, how that he is the very image of God. But we must move on to the fifth act of this grand drama. Act five, in one word, Salvation. That's what's cut off at the top of your slide. Salvation from God through Messiah received by faith by remnant Israel and Gentiles incorporated into the church of Jesus Christ. This is the book of Acts through Revelation. This is an overarching thought, the 30,000 foot view of the New Testament. This is the very wisdom of God. Paul writes to the Ephesians. Matter of fact, if you, if you want to turn there, I don't think I fixed this. Uh, I don't think I fixed this slide. I gave you Ephesians 3.10, but if you wanted to jot in verses 8 through 12, which more pictures the whole context, Ephesians chapter 3, this gospel, this salvation that the church preaches to the world is part of the wisdom of God. Ephesians 3, notice with me beginning in verse 8, Paul's reflecting upon his call as an apostle. And he says to me, the very least of all the saints, in other passages Paul would identify himself as the chief of sinners, uh, to the Corinthians, he mentions himself as one who's born out of due season. To me, the very least of all the saints was grace given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I get to take 
to the Gentiles what the Jews rejected. Verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. You know, in in other words, uh, the gospel, a crucified Savior who was raised for our justification, this wasn't a a good plan gone awry. This this wasn't uh, uh, God's plan B. The gospel... And the church, this is all took place in the infinite wisdom of God in eternity past. When when Paul talks about our salvation, he says that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. And but but it was a mystery. You're not going to find the church anywhere in the Old Testament. This is a mystery that God would bring this gospel to culmination in his own hidden wisdom. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This mystery revealed. What is the mystery? This mystery of unity of both Jew and Gentile Christians in the church. This is what he will flesh out elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, that the the Gentiles will be fellow heirs. This is something that uh, was a a mystery to the prophet Jonah. Why you send me to the, the heathen, the pagan, the Gentiles? God's always had a worldwide heart. In Ephesians 2, Verses 11 through 22 talks about in this mystery we've got Gentiles in the flesh who were once uncircumcision, who were without Christ, who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, who were strangers from the covenants. Who were the covenants given to in the Old Testament Scriptures? The Jew! They were strangers to that. But in verse 16 of Ephesians 2, He says that God has reconciled them both in one body, that is, the church. So, Act 5 is summarized by salvation from God through Messiah received by faith by both remnant Israel and Gentiles incorporated into the church of Jesus Christ. So, the church, God's plan right now in the age that we live in, seeks to image God to put His glory on display as they live out the church. Insert here, Romans 8.29, being conformed to the image of Christ through faith in His name. 1 Corinthians 15.49 and 2 Corinthians 3.18. Or Colossians 3.9-10. If you were a Christian, which, uh, you know, looking around, I've, I've heard just about every one of your testimonies. I'm talking to believers here. Why do you do certain things and don't do other things? In the grand scheme of of salvation, we don't do thus and such because it doesn't image God. You look at the way that Paul and other apostles will appeal of, of how we relate to each other, how we communicate to each other. He says, you don't do that because you're not you're not Gentiles anymore. 
the flesh you might be, but not in salvation. You don't do things because it doesn't bear a proper image of God. The, the church stays away from certain things and it emulates others to seek to image God to the world. Act 6 of the divine narrative. Here we've got the one word, judgment. Judgment of God against human rebels and the establishment of his reign through a man, his Messiah, over the earth. Revelation 4 through 20. In the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we've got on display the wrath and sovereignty of God. The day that he will balance the books. The day that he will... Uh, Answer the prayers of the saints who have prayed throughout the centuries. How long, O Lord? How long are the heathen going to rage? How long is your name going to be tracked through the mud? And here in the grand culmination of human history here on planet Earth, we've got a, a total rebellion of Satan and his angelic and human host against God and his Messiah. And then God's blessings upon man associated with him through his salvation. Revelation 20, as, as you recall, is the, the unfolding of the thousand-year reign of Messiah on the earth. And finally, in Act 7, we've got the eternal rule of God over all creation in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelations 21 and 22. The ultimate revelation of God and His dwelling among mankind. John records in Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place, is among men. He will dwell among them, they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away as the shepherd lives among His people. The ultimate revelation of God in His dwelling and the complete obedience of redeemed mankind to the Creator and saving God. You look at the glory of the New, Je New Jerusalem there in Revelation 21, yes, we pray even so, come Lord Jesus, but it's not just to be out of this body of pain and death. It is that glorious culmination where we are finally saved to sin no more. No longer will sin be fought against. No longer will sin be present. We will be able to worship Him unhindered by the fetters and the cords of this flesh. This is the place where God's glory will be on full display. As He is finally perfectly imaged, His display will be on fullest measure. We'll perfectly image Him. John says in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 2, we'll finally see Him as He is and be like Him. There'll no longer be any need for any sun or moon. Why? Because just the, the, the glory of God will shine so brightly there will no longer be need for it. 
This is the storyline of the Bible. Would you pray with me? Father, if all we had were brief snippets, it would be sufficient. You have a plan. You have a purpose. You are working your plan out to the ultimate perfection. And yet in your grace and your kindness, you have chosen to reveal your person and your plan on the pages of Scripture, giving us more detail, unpacking the grand story of who you are and what you are doing and what you expect of us. Oh God, would you drive us into the text of your word that we would not settle for just a surface meaning of Scripture, not just the gist, the storyline. Yes, to get into the details, but understand how you are working it all out from creation to culmination. Use us as faithful vessels in the cogs of the wheels of redemption that you are working out as you are continuing to save sinners, as you are using your church in the world, as you are expanding your kingdom, we seek to obediently pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. Bring to final fruition that work that you have started. All to the glory of your great name we ask it. Asking that you'd make us more consistent image bearers for you. For your great name we ask it, amen.